Hello, everyone, and welcome to Silver Streams, the weekly podcast from the AFI Silver Theater and Cultural Center's programming team. I'm Todd Hitchcock, AFI Silver's Director of Programming. I'm Abby Alga, Associate Film Programmer. And I'm Ben Delgado, the Assistant Film Programmer. And today we're going to discuss the latest offerings in AFI Silver's virtual screening room, as well as recommending some other titles to view at home. So new this week, we have Political Advertisement 10, 1952 to 2020. This is the 10th edition of media artists Anthony Montadas and Marshall Reese's eclectic selection of TV ads from U.S. presidential campaigns from 1952 to the present. We have The Donut King, a documentary about Donut King Ted Noy, a refugee from Cambodia who arrived in America in 1975 to build an unlikely multi-million dollar empire baking America's favorite pastry, the donut. We have Madre from Spanish director Rodrigo Sorogoyen, a slow burn thriller about a mother grappling with the loss of her son. We have a new 4K restoration of Federico Fellini's La Strada, starring his wife, Giulietta Messina, in a role as a circus performer that launched her to international stardom along with Fellini. And lastly, we have a documentary called First Vote, which looks at a diverse cross-section of politically engaged Chinese-American voters and weaves their stories of first-time voting and electoral organizing from the uh, presidential election of, of 2016 to the 2018 midterms. And as with previous episodes, today we're going to cover all of the new films premiering this week in AFI Silver's virtual screening room, recap the films that opened in previous weeks that are currently available to view there, and close with our programmer's picks, where we discuss other recommendations for what to screen at home. This is episode 27 of Silver Streams. We began the podcast back in April, shortly after we closed the doors to the AFI Silver Theater and launched our virtual cinema program. And we'd like to take a moment to thank everyone out there who's listening now for having listened to the podcast over these weeks and months. The numbers continue to climb and climb, which is wonderful to see, uh, especially for some of our most recent episodes, uh, including last week's where we discussed Mildred Pierce and All About Eve, starring Joan Crawford and Betty Davis, of course, and episode 24, where we discussed Roberta Rossellini's landmark film, Rome Open City, which launched the Italian neorealism moment, uh, or episode 23, where we discussed David Fincher's The Social Network, which had its 10th anniversary last month. Thank you all for listening to these episodes and thank you all for also screening films from our virtual screening room. By screening these films at home, you are supporting AFI Silver. We receive a portion of the proceeds for every virtual cinema transaction that you make. So by screening at home this way, you are supporting our theater during our extended closure. Thank you all for supporting the silver during this challenging time. And just a reminder, you can find all of the titles that we are currently offering to screen at home on our website at afi.com silver. And when you're on our website, please be sure to sign up for our e-blast in order to keep up with our latest announcements. If you have any feedback or questions, you can email us at silverinfo at afi.com. You can find the podcast each Friday posted on our website at afi.com silver in our Friday e-blast and on our social media channels. And we are in all of the places that you usually find your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, 
um, as well as recommending it to friends and people you think might be interested in the show. Um, as I've mentioned the past few weeks, that has been helping and we've been growing the audience of the show. So keep doing it, keep telling people about the show and keep subscribing and rating. And a big thanks to everyone who listened last week and also everyone who streamed something from our virtual screening room this past week and, and weekend. A big hit again this past weekend was Italian filmmaker Pietro Marcello's Martin Eden, which, as we mentioned last week, takes uh, Jack London's 1909 novel of the same name and sets it in Naples in the late 20th century. And as I mentioned, this has had a ton of excellent press and great reviews, even being called one of the best films of the year in, in one review that I read. And it's all very well deserved. And there have also been some Martin Scorsese comparisons made, I'll, I'll say. And Luca Marinelli stars in the lead role here as Martin Eden. Uh, he won the Best Actor Prize at the 2019 Venice Film Festival. And he is really good here, not to mention being quite handsome. Uh, and again, this is an encore presentation from last year's AFI European Union Film Showcase. So if you missed it then, like I did, this is a great chance to catch up with it. And it's a great chance to get ready for this year's EU Showcase, which is already shaping up to have some great Italian selections. And also doing well is uh, the excellent historical drama Radium Girls from directors Ginny Moller and Lydia Dean Pilcher. And this is a film about a group of women who battled industrial giant American radium in the 1920s after they became ill following prolonged exposure to radium while working in the company's New Jersey factory. And this film kind of blends period social drama, courtroom drama, labor history, women's history, and it's a really fascinating piece of storytelling with powerful and far-reaching relevance. So yeah, if you're interested in labor history or courtroom dramas, even true crime dramas, I think this is, this is a really interesting one for you. And as I mentioned last week, I definitely recommend it for teenage viewers. And also doing well in the virtual screening room is another Italian film that we just opened up last week, Citizens of the World. This is a delightful comedy and is the latest from director Gianni Di Gregorio. Uh, who also stars here as one of the three retirees hoping to move away from Rome uh, to a place where their pensions will go much further. And after two international art house hits, Mid-August Lunch and The Salt of Life, uh, Di Gregorio comes back uh, with this breezy film that a lot of people have enjoyed, um, as I mentioned, doing well in the screening room. And I hope more people get a chance to check it out, uh, as I'm sure they will. And still going strong is Oliver Sacks, His Own Life. This one has been going strong for a few weeks now, even a few months. Um, it's a really good documentary about Oliver Sacks, the neurologist and author who is featured prominently in the film. And as I've mentioned the past few weeks, is a really great interview. Um, if you want to know more about his life as a uh, uh, Mr. California muscle man or a, a biker or anything like that from his early life, uh, you get into that. And of course, his, his later years as well. It's a really fun documentary um, and a really great guy, Oliver Sacks. So I hope more people check it out and it continues to be a hit in the screening room. And rounding out our current uh, most popular titles in the virtual screening room are uh, a few more documentaries. Uh, so we have Totally Under Control. This is the latest film from Alex Gibney. And it is, of course, about the United States' woefully inadequate public health response to the coronavirus crisis. 
We also have Push. This is from documentarian Frederick Gerten, and it's a documentary that takes a look at the global housing crisis, uh, many cities, many countries, and widespread financial finagling and corruption. It's co-presented with the Embassy of Sweden in the U.S. and uh, films the Films Across Borders series. And also holding strong is Herb Alpert Is. This is a wonderful documentary about the musician Herb Alpert, uh, of course, uh, famous for his career with the Tijuana Brass and, and also as a solo artist, uh, covers those years where he sold millions and millions of records, actually outsold the Beatles in the late 60s. Uh, lesser known, uh, the fact that Alpert was the co-founder of the independent record label A&M, uh, and also what he's been doing later in life uh, with some of his endeavors with um, painting and sculpture. And it's just a, a wonderful, very pleasant documentary. I do encourage people to, to give that one a try. Herb Albert is. And then we also have a, a series, sort of a mini series that recently started, also focused on documentaries. And this is Wednesdays with Wiseman. Um, we will be opening the new film uh, by the legendary documentarian Frederick Wiseman. Uh, on November 6th. So this is a, this series is kind of a lead up to when the new film is going to open. The new film is called City Hall. We open that Friday, November 6th. And as we count down the days to the new film releasing, we have this terrific series going. So each week, each Wednesday, we premiere a new film from uh, Wiseman's back catalog, uh, which goes all the way back to the mid-60s. Wiseman, of course, is famous for his fly-on-the-wall observational documentary style, uh, often exploring the life of an institution and the people and activity that animates that institution and, by extension, uh, aspects of society overall. And each of the screenings in this series will include a taped Q&A, with Wiseman being interviewed by another documentary filmmaker. So, this week, uh, we just opened Sinai Field Mission from 1978, probably one of the uh, least known of, of Wiseman's 40-plus documentary features, not one that gets revived very often. And this one is going to feature Wiseman in conversation with uh, the equally famed documentarian Errol Morris. And then still available from last week is Ballet from 1995, and that one features a conversation between Wiseman and the filmmaker Elizabeth Chai Vasaheli, who is the director of Free Solo, a very uh, popular and, and critically acclaimed documentary from a couple of years ago. And then next week on Wednesday, November 4th, we're going to open Hospital from 1970. And that one will include a Q&A between Fred Wiseman and the filmmakers Heidi Ewing and Rachel Grady. They're the documentary team co-directors behind Jesus Camp, among other films. And again, uh, be on the lookout for Wiseman's latest film. Uh, it's amazing. He's still cranking them out now in his 90s. Uh, and that is City Hall. In this case, that's City Hall uh, in Boston. Uh, and that's, again, opening Friday, November 6th. We also have a virtual series called Taiwanese Cinema Rediscovered, which is going to run through November 5th to the 29th, so opening soon. And it looks at the multitude of contributions that Taiwanese filmmakers have made to world cinema. We started this series last year, 
when we were open in person with support of the Taiwan Academy of Taipei Economic and Cultural Representative Office in the United States. And we plan to continue doing it annually with their support. We're showing a wide range of films again this year from classic genre cinema to critically acclaimed auteur works of the new cinema and second new wave movements. Um, this year, we also have a special sidebar of classic wuxia martial arts films uh, made in Taiwan, including several restored masterpieces from director King Hu. And all the films in the series will be available throughout the entire United States. There's also a series pass if you want to watch them all. And I highly recommend that you do. If nothing else, be sure to check out Edward Yang's Yi Yi, an all-time classic from one of my personal favorite filmmakers. The complete lineup and for more details about the series, you can visit our website and you'll see all the films there. And when they open, definitely check out the series. It's, it's a really good one. And we've also just announced a festival that we're doing in partnership with the Film Noir Foundation called Noir City International, which, yes, is basically this year's virtual iteration of our annual, very popular Noir City DC festival. Uh, the program is going to run from November 13th to 29th, and all of the films will feature intros, some from the Tsar of Noir himself, TCM's Eddie Muller, and others from other members of the Film Noir Foundation. And as the program's title suggests, uh, we're taking our cue from this year's uh, Noir City in San Francisco, and the lineup will focus heavily on film noir from beyond the US. We're going to go to Japan and France, South Korea, Argentina, Germany, Italy, and more. So it's going to be a great way to travel the world as winter sets in. And also, I am delighted that the festival is happening in November this year because we can finally christen the whole month November, which is much better than Hitchcocktober, by the way. Well, let's just keep things rolling with uh, letting people know about our plans for December. Uh, so also on the horizon, I want everyone to be aware and, and on the lookout for the return of the AFI European Union Film Showcase, which will once again be taking place in December, December uh, 2 through 20 uh, this year. And this year we will be presenting it online for the first time. And as we did back in September and October with our Latin American Film Festival, we're looking forward to having a terrific lineup of films, the range and the quality and the volume that people associate with uh, how we have done over the years, uh, the past installments of our EU Film Showcase. Uh, those of you who are familiar with this particular event know that we always have a, a number of terrific films every year featured in the EU Showcase, many of which will eventually uh, be released in the U.S., may factor into the Oscar considerations for Best International Film, as well as some that aren't going to get released in the U.S., and this is your chance to see them. So stay tuned for more details on that, um, but do be on the lookout for that uh, terrific festival returning in December. All right, in addition to all of those events we have coming up, the big event is taking place tonight, this Friday, the first day that this podcast is going up, uh, out, out to the public, Friday, October 30th at 8 p.m. Eastern time. So if you're tuning in to the podcast this afternoon, uh, get ready to, to join back with us this evening for uh, our special presentation online. And this is our annual presentation of Nosferatu, the 1922 horror classic, vampire classic, directed by the great F.W. Murnau. And this year presented online, featuring live musical accompaniment by Andrew Simpson. We have screened this film at AFI Silver every year, going back many years. 
uh, in the lead up to Halloween, typically on the, the Friday closest to Halloween. And this year, we are able to keep that tradition going and do it again, uh, just this time online. Uh, so yes, the theater's closed. We're doing this online, keeping the tradition going. Uh, we need you to pre-register. We need you to uh, go to the website and you'll, you'll find the listing just like all of our other films right now. This is a pay what you can event. You'll see how to, to do all of that on our website. You pre-register, you'll then receive uh, you know, the equivalent of a virtual ticket to watch the film online on our website. It will be a live stream. Uh, again, all of that information is on our website. It's pay what you can. A big thank you to those of you who have already registered and to those of you who have um, made a supporting contribution. Thank you very much for that. And really looking forward to, to doing the film and uh, again this year and kicking off Halloween weekend. And in addition, we have a special treat for all of you going into Halloween uh, right here on this week's podcast. Uh, and that is, we have a very special guest and it's Mr. Andrew Simpson himself. Would you Hello, please welcome Todd. Andrew Simpson? Hi, Andrew. Hi, Todd. So great to be with you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thank you for being our guest. Uh, we've been doing the podcast for a while and we've had a few guests now and i um, really happy that, that you're our guest today. Um, and of course you've played with us at AFI Silver many times over the years, and you've played for Nosferatu, uh, in the past as well. Um, but this will be the first time, uh, where you're doing it online for us. Yes. Um, but this is not your first time playing on online, uh, for a silent film. Um, you've been actually quite busy doing things like that. Yes, that's true. Um, Todd, since the uh, pandemic has shut everyone down, uh, I have been involved in a couple of uh, online activities back from the spring through the summer. Uh, one thing that I did was I started a daily series called Sparklers on YouTube. And this is a short improvisation, one to two minutes long in most cases. Uh, and it's uh, original music that I improvise normally in one take. And then I accompany it with either uh, film sequences, sometimes that I shoot myself, or with compiled video montages uh, drawn from such great sources as the Prelinger archives uh, uh, on Internet Archive, or uh, in some cases, still images. I've collaborated with visual artists and choreographers. So uh, for me, it's a series that began in mid-April and my goal is to continue that every day, and I've done it every day. Tonight is episode 196. On Halloween itself, it'll be episode 200. Oh, wow. Um, so it'll be, and I, I'm going to end it, I hope, all things working correctly, uh, and I'm able to do it on New Year's Day of 2021, which would make 262 episodes. Um but it's been a really wonderful experience on YouTube. If you were to go to my channel, Andrew E. Simpson, and you would look up the Sparklers playlist. It's a daily video, and uh, every night there's a new one. Uh, also, in addition, I've been doing some live stream uh, of silent films as well. I've now done four shows over the summer, um, streaming right here from my uh, home here in uh, Silver Spring, Maryland. And uh, I've been doing, I've done a program of comedies. I've done a program, a couple of programs from the Library of Congress. And I've had other guests on like David Callot and Rob Stone from the library. So uh, I'm particularly thrilled to be doing Nosferatu uh, with AFI Silver this year. So I'm very excited about doing this tonight. 
As are we. And uh, for some of those feature films that you've provided accompaniment, that's also something people can find on your YouTube channel? Yes, that's right. So on the same channel, if you go to Andrew E. Simpson, you would find under uh, the live video feed, uh, I have some titles that are maybe uh, titles that would you know, grab your attention. Ex An Exploding Cow and Other Fancies is one title. Um, Boxing Cats and More is another one. So you, you can find these uh, on my channel. Uh, and also my website, andrewesimpson.com, has uh, video and audio clips of uh, not only some of my silent film work, but my uh, my other pieces as well. My my existence as a concert composer and performer. Well, I'm I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that because uh, you perform as a musician that way as well, and mm -hmm. you're a professor of music at Catholic University of America in Washington D.C. Yes. So I'm I'm curious, and I I think our listeners might enjoy hearing. How did you first uh, choose to become involved with silent film and and providing musical accompaniment for silent film? Where where did that sort of come in as something that you were interested in in trying out? And then also I'm curious. How does that fit in musically with different things that you do? Well, as with so many things, it happened really by accident or by a combination of circumstances. Uh, I was uh, trained and educated as a classical concert composer. I got my doctorate in composition from Indiana University. And uh, I, as uh, you just mentioned, I'm a university professor. So I teach uh, music theory and composition uh, at the university level. But I've also maintained a, a career as a performer and composer. Um, it wasn't really until I came to Washington, D.C. in the uh, late 90s that I uh, was introduced to the possibilities of silent film music. Um, I've been involved in theater for most of my life. I've, uh, you know, have a strong visual sense, I think, personally. Uh, and I also, from the time I was in college, started a job, a summer job as a ballet accompanist. And uh, I've continued to do that for many years since. And I think that gave me a couple of things. Number one, it uh, helped me to learn how to improvise. I have never had a lesson in improvisation. It's not something that, unless you're an organist or a jazz musician, you're not normally taught improvisation. But uh, in this case, I just sort of had to learn how to do it. And so I, I learned it. And also I learned how to respond to dancers uh, and, and what they were doing, matching what their motions were with uh, music. And, and I think that that ties in very well. Like a modern dance class would often have improvisations on the part of the dancers. And so I am then improvising in real time to what the dancers are doing. So it's actually a perfect fit because that's really what film is as well. It's film, silent film is essentially theater and the music is partnering with those images and putting them together to make a, a, a complete show. Um, so when I came to Washington, my friend Maurice Saylor, who's a composer with whom I've worked, uh, we founded the Snark Ensemble a few years ago, and you know we've played at AFI, uh, was the one who really got me interested in the possibilities of silent film uh, and the possibilities for musicians. Because many films, as you know, uh, that were created since the 1890s through the silent era never had uh, an original score written for them. Um, and so there was an opportunity for new music. Uh, and other films, such as Nosferatu, uh, does have a score by Hans Erdmann, which was written at the time. Um, but there's also something wonderful about the uh, being able to contribute new scores. Um, as new generations come, they provide a new, it's a new partner. Um, in the same way as, um, you know, no one would, I think, expect uh, that 
Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker would all, no choreographer should ever create new choreography or that no director should ever do a different production of Tosca or La Boheme. Um, you know, these things are partner arts, they're collaborative arts, and they're meant to be partnered with different partners. And so I, I see the same thing is true of, of silent film, that it can have scores from any number of uh, periods in any number of styles. And that to me feeds wonderfully into that idea of music telling a story. In my view, the film is the important part. I mean, we're here to, to watch a film, uh, but the music, if it's done well, is done in such a way that you're partnering with the story. You're helping the film tell its story without calling too much attention to yourself. But if it weren't there, you know, I think there would be something missing. So I, I love that kind of paradox of, you know, being a partner, not stepping in front, but also being, you know, if you're right. doing it right, essential. And that audiences often forget that there's a live musician. Well, and that can be a compliment, right? Oh, absolutely. When it just yes. seems to be working hand in glove like that. Yes. Well, yes. I got to hear a little bit of, of what you're going to do with Nosferatu this year with uh, our, our demo rehearsals earlier today. And yes. it's going to sound fantastic. It's going to sound spooky, among other things. So I think <laughs> people should be looking forward to hearing that. Those of you who are listening yes. to this uh, Friday afternoon and joining us Friday evening uh, tonight. And then... Um, Andrew, uh, over the years, you, you mentioned Stark Ensemble. You did a, a fantastic selection of Charlie Chaplin uh, mutual short comedies with the Stark Ensemble, uh, original compositions by, by you. Uh, and then also your amazing choral score for The Wind uh, with the Cantate mm -hmm. Singers many years ago. That's right. Um, so we've, we've, had, we've hosted several uh, amazing shows, as well as the things that you've done improv that uh, just happened to go amazingly well. Uh, but those those specific compositions are are just amazing, and um, perhaps those are things that people can seek out um, either on DVD or on your uh, YouTube channel as well, yes. among other things. Mm -hmm. But I, I just wanted to close by asking you, what are some of your favorite things to do in the silent film canon, both uh, in terms of specific titles, filmmakers, or maybe also something that you haven't had the opportunity to do that much yet, but you're hoping to someday? Yes, I mean it's a it's a great question because you know when you when you do accompaniment you play for every kind of film. Um, you know I I have a particular fondness for dramas. I feel as though I have a real affinity with that. But I play comedies and westerns and science fiction pictures, horror films. Um, but it's interesting because yes, there are, are always films that you want to play and haven't had the chance to do yet. Um, amazingly, I've yet to accompany Metropolis. Oh wow! So, <laughs> right, which which I will say does have a wonderful original score. Um, Godfrey well, you just haven't it. found that spare two and a half hours to, yes, to take that exa on yet. <laughs> exactly. But that's certainly a film that I, I look forward to playing uh, in the near future. Uh, and there are always, um, you know, films that I, I particularly think are wonderful that I would love to have a crack at when the opportunity permits. Uh, one example is The Strongman with Harry Langdon. Mm -hmm. um, it's an interesting film because, uh, you know, if, if you know City Lights of Chaplin, there are some similarities in oh, the story okay. and and Langdon really does his work in this film there are moments that really think of rival Chaplin in terms of the way he's able to combine you know pathos with with comedy um so th those are a couple of examples of films that I would love to have the the chance to accompany okay so I guess we have some yeah. things to talk about for the future <laughs> yeah for sure absolutely that's right all right great to know <laughs> but, but I, and I love the Nosferatu because every time I come to it you know it's it's fresh 
And I think that, you know, if, if there are those who are seeing the film for the first time tonight, I, I say, lucky you, because you get to experience this classic. Um, but it, it's, it really is, I think it maintains its sense of ear, eeriness and, uh, and, and horror uh, to the present. I think it's just a wonderful experience. Yeah, coming up on nearly 100 years old. So that's right. Uh, it, it certainly it certainly does. So, Andrew, thank you so much for being our guest and uh, on the podcast. And I'll be talking to you again later this evening. So. <laughs> yes, indeed. Thank you so much, Todd. A real right. pleasure. Thanks. Okay, the first of our new films debuting in the virtual screening room this week is Political Advertisement. And this is a compilation of televisual presidential campaign ads made over the years from 1952 to the present. This is now the 10th updated edition of the project from visual artists Anthony Matadas and Marshall Reese. And we featured this program at the AFI Silver several times over the, the last several years with every presidential election every four years, uh, bringing about a new edition of, of the project. The compilation opens with a statement from the artists. Looking back at these political ads provides a key to understanding the evolution of images on television and the marketing of politics, and then begins by showing us some of the earliest TV political ads ever produced for the 1952 election, uh, won by Republican Dwight D. Eisenhower over Democratic nominee Adlai E. Stevenson. And these two were the nominees again in 1956, and between 52 and 56, you can already see evolutions from the rather basic direct-to-camera address used in the 52 ads to the ones just four years later in 1956 with a clever cartoon ad uh, done for Stevenson and a much better, more dynamic TV presenter than we saw in the 1952 ad, two very similar ads, uh, both advocating for the women's vote. And then by 1960, we're off to the races uh, in terms of the evolution of, of advertising styles and um, the, the product created for, for television use. So the Nixon ads here are trading on his experience as Eisenhower's vice president, and they're fine if, you know, very straightforward, but the JFK ads are much more energetic. We see one with strong graphics, animation, and a catchy campaign song. It's all very Mad Men-esque. Another one where JFK receives uh, an endorsement from actor-singer Harry Belafonte, uh, where they discuss not only advocacy for the civil rights movement, but a callback to the policies of FDR. And also an ad with Jackie Kennedy uh, speaking fluently in Spanish to the audience. 1964, uh, this is the year of LBJ's infamous Daisy ad with terrifying imagery of a nuclear bomb going off if Goldwater were elected, is the clear implication. And then in 1968, we see slick ads uh, for both Republicans and Democrats, uh, both for Hubert Humphrey, but also Nixon's team have really raised their game by this point in terms of media imagery. Um, and of course, the eventual Fox News impresario, Roger Ailes, was greatly responsible for that. 68 is the year that also features one of those bugbears of fear-mongering that we'll see return over the years, law and order, and the specter of civil unrest and rioting in the streets. So here we have Nixon calling for an honest look at the issue of order heard in voiceover in scenes of then-recent urban riots and destruction. And there's also a Nixon ad talking about freedom from fear, with a woman walking down a dark city street ending in the slogan, vote like your whole world depends on it. And finally, in 1968, 
we see a significant third-party campaign advertisement from Alabama Governor George Wallace here railing against school busing, among other issues. 1972 features more of the same on the Nixon side with McGovern pushing against the Vietnam War. But then 1976 has a different approach with uh, much sunnier campaign advertisements from both Ford and Carter, including soft rock campaign songs. 1980, of course, has Reagan, but also other primary contenders, including Ted Kennedy's insurgency against Carter and eventual Reagan vice president George Bush in his effort here against Reagan. In 1984, now incumbent Reagan serves up a sweet vision of a recovered America and the voiceover intoning President Reagan, he's doing what he was elected to do. So like it or not, by this point, image had been firmly established as a front in the US presidential campaign. And in 1988, we see a very clever Dukakis ad pushing back at the repackaged phony image of George Bush. And the ad features very cynical, slick, yuppie-styled media consultants who are cynically laughing off how their candidate, Bush, will say whatever they tell him to say, in this case, about caring about the environment. And of course, Bush really did have some very cynical media personnel at the time, including Lee Atwater, who was the author of the infamous Willie Horton ad, which we see here, uh, tying a furloughed rapist and murderer to Dukakis. Going into the 90s, we see... Uh, Bush, Clinton, Dole ads, of course, but also the ads from also rands like Jerry Brown, Paul Songus, Lamar Alexander, and Steve Forbes pushing his flat tax. And also the third party candidacies of Ross Perot railing against the deficit and Pat Buchanan first pursuing the Republican nomination as an insurgent against George Bush, then as a third party candidate in 2000 with extremely dark and hysterically pitched ads railing against the NEA funding pornographic art, illegal immigrants supposedly pouring across the southern border, and railing against the elimination of prayer in school and the posting of the Ten Commandments in his third run in 2000. 2000 is, of course, George W. Bush versus Al Gore, but we are also reminded here that basketball superstar Michael Jordan taped an endorsement for former New York Nick Bill Bradley, the senator from New Jersey. And third-party spoiler candidate Ralph Nader contributes a clever commercial parodying an old visa ad tailing up political spending summation priceless. Then in 2004, we see the infamous Swift Boat Veterans for Truth ad slandering candidate John Kerry, a new low in specious character assassination, which seemingly cost George W. Bush very little as he went on to win re-election. At the time, this was played off as a case of plausible deniability of any association with this toxic ad as it came from a third-party organization, a 527 PAC. And even though facts eventually came to light regarding both its untruthfulness, the ad, and the PAC's connection to Republican operatives, the damage was already done. But this is around the time, 2004, that we begin to see significant presence from third-party PAC-funded and created ads with the new terrain of the internet providing a richly fertile ground for them to be deployed. So it's no longer a matter of just what's airing on broadcast television. Uh, there's an explosion of, of these kind of ads and more places uh, to deploy them and, and get eyeballs on them. And we see a number of clever and effective ads from organizations like MoveOn that notably aren't hit pieces, trafficking and unsubstantiated false claims. There's an ad from MoveOn with young children performing manual labor and heavy industry 
uh, carrying the debt of the previous generation. It's legitimately cinematic, as is, uh, of course, the the bootleg uh, unofficial ad, but it played, a lot of people saw it nonetheless online. Uh, it's a repurposed Apple ad from 1984 done for the 2008 Obama campaign, repurposing the 1984 Apple ad mini movie homage to George Orwell's 1984 here with Hillary Clinton cast in the big brother image on the big screen and the track and field insurrectionist woman now is now wearing an Obama campaign emblem on her tank top instead of a, an, an Apple icon. And since 2008, these ads have only gotten bolder in their approach to content and proliferated as the internet and streaming tech have become more immediate for viewers. Moving on to 2008 and, and 12, we hear from Former presidential candidates, some still in the news today, like Mike Huckabee and Rudy Giuliani, John Huntsman, Rick Perry, Herman Cain, Rick Santorum, and Ron Paul, father of Kentucky Senator Rand Paul. The Ron Paul ad here is graphics heavy and quick cutting. It could be selling fast food or energy drink instead of a political candidate. 2016 is, of course, still a recent memory, but students of the media should take note that a good song choice can make for a mini movie, like the Bernie Sanders spot featuring America by Simon and Garfunkel. And also the scare tactics, vitriol and blatant misogyny aimed at Hillary Clinton across a number of ads, including ones funded by the NRA and Karl Rove's American Crossroads Super PAC. From this year, we take a trip down memory lane to the now distant campaign memories of Julian Castro, Kirsten Gillibrand, Tom Steyer, and Andrew Yang, who cut a cute ad with comedian Dave Chappelle. President Trump's own ads declare that he's not always a nice guy and a plea to stop Joe Biden and his rioters. So the Goldwater-Reagan balance is totally out the window, and Nixon looks subtle by comparison. These sort of insights are available to you, the viewer, because you've just taken a tour of nearly 70 years of quickly evolving media communications art if you check out political advertisement this week. And the final ad in the compilation comes from the much praised, highly prolific, and very clever The Lincoln Project, with yet another callback to Reagan's 1984 ad, Morning in America, which we've seen multiple candidates reference in this compilation. This one is mourning with a U, weeping for the state of our nation instead of welcoming a new day, and accusing the Republicans of bailing out Wall Street, but not Main Street, with the final line of narration saying, if we have another four years like this, will there even be an America? So please do watch political advertisement this week. And please, everyone in our American audience, get out there and vote. Election day is Tuesday, November 3rd, but early voting in most states is right now. Definitely. And I mean, maybe you feel like you've seen enough political ads for a lifetime in the past few months, but I would definitely still recommend checking this compilation out. It's fascinating and it's also a very different experience, as Todd mentioned, seeing all of these ads chronologically back to back than it is, you know, watching any one of them in isolation. And you start to see weird echoes and connections and contradictions. And yes, I'll say it again, this is all great time capsule material or kind of a series of great time capsules. It truly is. And, um, you know, the, the presentation I gave uh, should not be confused with having detailed everything in the compilation. I mean, that was just a sampling. Um, but because it has that breadth and because you have the opportunity of being reminded of, of some things from years past and, and seeing how things evolve uh, over, over the years, there's so much to, to get out of this. And, and some of them are really clever. Some of them are funny. 
Um, and some of them are, are just landmarks for better or for worse in, in the marketing of, of the presidency. I think I've seen four different installations of, of the compilation now over the years. Um, you know, some things make it in a, across each edition. Some things are lost and new things added with the most recent election cycle. Um, but I've gotten a lot out of all of the viewings and um, beyond what I mentioned here in the presentation, there's, there's a lot more as well. So uh, I do encourage you to, to check it out. Certainly if, if you're someone who's politically inclined and keeps up with politics, but also if that's not necessarily your, your main interest point, but you are, uh, uh, do have an interest in film, filmmaking, film history, there's a lot to be gained from, from this viewing because it, it really is, uh, media history and and evolving media art in in the approach to again marketing the image uh, and competing for the presidency. All right, so once again, that's political advertisement, and that's coming to us from Ligorano Reese. And next up in the virtual screening room, we have the debut feature film from seasoned cinematographer Alice Wu, The Donut King. This is an inspiring documentary that tells the story of the Donut King himself, Cambodian immigrant Ted Noy, who built a donut empire throughout the state of California from the mid-1970s all the way into the 90s. As a refugee fleeing from an ongoing war zone with his wife and young children, Ted found himself in Orange County in Tustin, California in 1975. After being taken in by a local church and working three different jobs to make ends meet, he decided to commit himself to making donuts quickly moving up in the Winchell's chain of donut shops, where he first learned the trade at the age of 33 and soon found himself managing his own Winchell's location. Once he was able to put together the capital, he bought a Christie's Donuts in La Habra that would launch an empire. Before too long, he was leasing out locations to newly immigrated Cambodians and growing the business exponentially. By the 1980s, he had become a millionaire in the donut business and overtaken the whole state with his shops. Donut King tells not only Ted Noy's story, but his family's as well. We hear from both his immediate and extended families, including his children, wife, cousins, and many others who he helped start a new life in the United States. All of these interviews serve to round out Ted's story, but they also show the impact of his vision as we get to know the different generations that Ted touched. Through getting to know all these people, we see the unique stories of different families the larger story of the Cambodian-American experience, and the even broader immigrant story that transcends cultures, complete with footage of presidents like Jimmy Carter calling the U.S. a nation of immigrants. The film is a classic American dream story gone mostly right. There are a few twists and turns that I won't spoil, but there's enough for at least one narrative adaptation here, with some of the ups and downs in Ted's long career. The documentary looks at Ted's story chronologically, and we see some sobering footage from his time in Cambodia and Thailand, where he was a major in the army thanks to his brother-in-law before he and his family fled to the United States. We also see plenty of old family photos and videos that take you straight back into the 70s, 80s, and even the 90s. The film spans nearly 50 years and ends giving a voice to a new generation of donut purveyors who are innovating not only in donut creation, but also fully embracing social media and updating their image to ensure their relevance and survival in a recent donut boom that has sprung up over the past five years or so. And of course, there's plenty of donut footage to go around in this movie. And I suggest you have a donut on hand or get ready to pick one up afterwards because you're going to want one. 
Well, I think, Ben, all of this sounds like it would make a really good narrative feature film. It's kind of an era-spanning epic, a bit like Casino, but with with donuts instead. Um, What do you think? Do you think that that's in the cards? And who do you think might be might be doing this inevitable feature adaptation? Uh, I agree. I think it is ripe for a uh, an adaptation, uh, a fictionalization of, of this really interesting story with lots of twists and turns, as I mentioned. Um, I don't know if this will actually happen, obviously. This is who I wish would make it, not necessarily who should make it, but I think the Safdie brothers would have a really interesting take on the story um, and can really ratchet up the tension uh, of Ted Noy and, and the whole whole donut empire that he had. Uncut gems with donuts. And for those of you who are watching uh, Donut King this weekend, uh, please be aware that there is a virtual Q&A with director Alice Gu and special guests on Sunday, November 1st at 8 p.m. Eastern. So if you hear this before then, uh, be sure to check out that Q&A. And maybe the Donut King himself will make an appearance because uh, we have special guests build. Um, so we'll see who those people are. I'm sure it'll be a great Q&A and there's so much going on in the film that um, I think there'll be a lot of questions to be, to be had here. Again, that's Sunday, November 1st at 8 p.m. So check out that Q&A and check out the film. It's uh, The Donut King from our friends at Greenwich Entertainment. So next up in the virtual screening room is Madre coming to us from Strand Releasing. And Madre is the latest film from Spanish director Rodrigo Sorogoyen who is kind of a wunderkind of Spanish cinema right now with films like May God Save Us from 2016 and The Realm, a.k.a. The Candidate from 2018, which opened our Spanish Cinema Now program last year and, I'll note, sold out in a 400-seat theatre. And both of those films actually won Goya Awards for Best Director and Best Original Screenplay, and that's, you know, like Spain's Oscars. And this latest film, Madre, which is Sorogoyne's fifth film, he's just in his 30s by the way, builds on a story that he began with his Oscar-nominated 2017 short of the same name. And the film is not only inspired by this short, but it actually incorporates it in its entirety as a kind of a prologue consisting of this one 17-minute long take in which this Madrid mother, Elena, played by Marta Nieto, becomes increasingly panicked when her six-year-old son, Ivan, calls to tell her that his father's left him on the beach and that he's lost, his phone battery is depleting, and there's a strange man following him. So the film starts out as this kind of heart-stopping thriller that quickly escalates tension and fear and despair and at this point you could imagine the film proceeding in a variety of different ways with will this be a thriller a police procedural a horror film a murder mystery it could be any of these well it actually turns out not really to be any of these at all but instead something completely unexpected it turns into this slow burning psychological drama about the relationship between a traumatized mother who hasn't really processed her grief and a curious teen boy who may or may not bear some resemblance to her late son. The remainder of the film is set 10 years after the nightmarish scenario of its first 17 minutes as we cut to the present and to Elena's life a decade after the loss of her son. She's moved to the seaside town where he went missing, which is on the Atlantic coast of France, just north of the Spanish border. 
And outwardly, Elena has a pretty idyllic life. She lives right by the beach. She manages this seaside cafe. She has a calm, dependable, very caring boyfriend. But it's clear that she still hasn't fully processed the loss of her son, especially when we see her taking these kind of long walks on the beach where he presumably met his end. It's clear that she hasn't quite resolved her grief at this point. And it's during one of these long walks that she strikes up an odd friendship with a local French teenager called Jean, played by Jules Poirier. And Jean is staying in town with his family for the summer season. And he's around 16, almost exactly the age Eleanor's son Ivan would have been by now. And though we never actually see a picture of Ivan, it's clear from Eleanor's actions and look on her face that Jean stirs up something kind of maternal in her. And we have to imagine that he must bear some kind of resemblance to Ivan, or at least to how Eleanor imagines he would have looked at age 16. And from here, Eleanor and Jean embark on this kind of ambiguous, honestly, at times uncomfortable friendship. And as the summer days drift by, this unlikely pair continue to spend time together to the clear amusement and concern of Jean's parents and, of course, Eleanor's boyfriend. And, of course, to the growing unease of us as an audience as we kind of try to piece together what exactly is going on and to pinpoint the precise nature of this unlikely friendship. Is Jean hoping for some kind of romance with an older, more experienced woman? Is, is Eleanor looking for a surrogate son? Or are they just two lonely, misunderstood people, 20 years apart in age, who just have this connection and enjoy the company of a fellow lost soul? And the beauty of the script by Sorogoyan and his regular co-writer, Isabel Peña, is that it does respect the fact that the characters probably don't know the exact answers to these questions either. It's, it is ambiguous. It allows their motivations to be mysterious and unclassifiable. But regardless, their friendship is very strange in the eyes of everyone around them. And of course, it threatens to upset the fragile balance that Eleanor has found in her life since losing her son. Actress Marta Nieto, who, who also plays the role in the short version of the film, is absolutely excellent here, walking this very fine line between motivations and between being a character that we judge in some ways for making some questionable decisions and one that we feel deeply for as someone with an unimaginable amount of loss to contend with. Nieta won the Best Actress Award at the 2019 Venice Film Festival for this role, as well as a number of other acting prizes in Spain. And she also received a nomination for the Best Actress at this year's Goya Awards, all very well deserved. Uh, she's mainly known for her TV work in Spain, but she does have three features in production right now. And her latest film just premiered at the Stige International Film Festival. So she is definitely on a roll right now and definitely someone to keep an eye on. So it's kind of hard to sum up exactly what to expect with this film, uh, which I think actually is one of its big strengths. Uh, I think you could compare it to films like Francois Ozon's Under the Sand, which is actually set in the, the same region and also deals with disappearance and grief, or something like Ashgar Fahadi's About Ellie, Hal Ashby's Harold and Maud, Jonathan Glazer's Birth, or even Hitchcock's Vertigo. It's a psychological thriller, it's a mystery, in a way it's kind of a love story, uh, and it's a film about ambiguous intergenerational relationships, but also loss. And like the relationship at the center of it, 
the film is hard to define. And I think it will keep you guessing and thinking far beyond the credits. So Abby, you mentioned the the beginning of this as being the short and uh, one of the nominees for best short for the Oscar. And that's where I happened to catch it and was really hoping to see more of it. So I'm excited to watch the film myself and and see the conclusion of, uh, of this story, which, as you mentioned, changes up in tone. Um, but it really had me on edge when I, when I saw it the first time and um, can't wait to catch up and watch the whole thing. Yeah, I think you will definitely love this film. And yeah, you will be kind of surprised, I think, by the directions that it goes in after this kind of very high anxiety, suspenseful, almost horror-esque opening. Um, it doesn't go where you would expect it to go. And that's part of the beauty of the film. So yeah, I think definitely check this one out this weekend, Ben. Well, I really liked Rodrigo Sorgoyan's 2018 film, The Realm, um, also known as The Candidate, which we featured in just last year in our Spanish Cinema Now series. So I really need to check the new one out as well. Yeah, I think you'll enjoy this too, Todd, a good amount. Um, It's a very different film from The Realm. This is more of a psychological kind of personal drama. But as you know, as you mentioned, Sargoin is a very talented filmmaker. And so if you saw The Realm and you liked it, you'll enjoy this one. But, you know, if you haven't seen The Realm or his other films, this is as good a place as any to, to start. All right, so that's Madre coming to us from Strand Releasing. And next up in the virtual screening room, we have La Strada, a seminal film from director Federico Fellini that we briefly mentioned in our discussion of Italian neorealism a couple of weeks back during our programmer's picks section where we talked about Rome Open City for its 75th anniversary. This is a brand new 4K restoration done by the Criterion Collection and the Film Foundation at Cineteca di Bologna's L'Imagine Ritrovata Laboratory. La Strada is a landmark film in many ways. It broke away from the mold of Italian neorealism, leaving behind familiar signposts of the movement for a more poetic fable of love and cruelty, evoking brilliant performances and winning the hearts of audiences and critics worldwide, including winning the first ever Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film, as well as Best Screenplay. In La Strada, the captivating Giulietta Massina stars as Gelsomina, the wide-eyed, soulful, and full-of-life peasant girl who is sold by her mother to Anthony Quinn's brutish strongman Zampano to work as his assistant in his traveling street performance, replacing her own sister Rosa, who had recently died. Despite working and traveling alongside him, after learning the basics in clowning, some snare drum, trumpet, and dancing from Zampano, Kelsomina continues to suffer under the strongman's ruthlessness and cruelty. When she can no longer take it, she runs off and happens upon The Fool, played by Richard Basehart. The Fool is a high-wire performer and a clown. He's doing his act in the street, and when Gelsomina is watching him, Zampano quickly finds her and drags her away, um, and they subsequently join a traveling circus together, Zampano and Gelsomina do. And it just so happens that the fool is already a part of this circus and he teases Zampano relentlessly, really driving him to his breaking point and driving him to madness uh, and testing his character. This film is truly an all-time classic that launched both Messina and her husband, also the director, Federico Fellini, to international stardom. Even if you've seen this one before, you should definitely do yourself a favor and revisit it in this beautiful new restoration that's now in our virtual screening room. 
I highly suggest the film uh, as one of Fellini's best, one of my favorite of his, uh, but also the restoration looks gorgeous. Uh, I find that these black and white restorations in particular can look really, really stunning. And I think they did a great job with it. And I hope uh, people check this one out. Well, this is another film band like Lane, which we talked about a few weeks ago that I actually have not seen since I was at university in an Italian neorealism class, obviously. And I'm looking forward to rewatching it again. I was really happy um, when we watched Rome Open City, Roberto Rossellini's film again uh, for the pod uh, a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, to see some things and learn some things that I definitely missed the first time around. So I'm sure I'll have a similar experience with La Strada. And uh, if you haven't seen it, watch it. Uh, and if you have, uh, revisit it like I'm about to do. Uh, yeah, I was actually in the same boat, Abby. I hadn't seen it since since around uh, college time. Um, so like eight, eight, nine years ago, around that time. Um, but the restoration is really good here. And I think I, I noticed that difference between uh, seeing it when I did uh, back in college. So um, yeah, definitely worth revisiting if you haven't, as you mentioned. Um, and first time viewers are in for a treat. It's an amazing movie. And this year is also the year of Federico Fellini's centennial. He was born January 20th, 1920. So if you need one more good reason to motivate and watch La Strada right now, there you have it. And I'll give you just one more on top of that. Also, reacquaint yourself with the wonderful actress Julietta Messina, who's just so good here, uh, as she was in other roles, often working with her husband, Fellini, uh, most especially Knights of Cabiria and Juliet of the Spirits. Uh, agreed. I think Julietta Messina is amazing here. And in the films you just mentioned, um, a lot of people compare her to Charlie Chaplin, which I think is a pretty good comparison in a lot of ways. Um, and yeah, her and the Centennial and there are a myriad of reasons why people should check this film out. So uh, I hope if you're listening that you do yourself a favor and watch La Strada. So that's La Strada and a new 4K restoration from our friends at Janice Films. And then the fifth film we have uh, debuting this week in the virtual screening room is the documentary First Vote. And this film's directed by Yi Chen, who's a local DC-based filmmaker. And it's about Chinese-American voters in the American electorate, a small but quickly growing subset of voters. Overall, Asian-Americans are the fastest growing population in the US, with more than 11 million Asian-Americans uh, registered to vote for this year's election. And as we see here in Yi Chen's documentary, it's not a monolithic uh, electorate. There's a diversity of political affiliations, including both Republican and Democratic voters. Among the characters profiled here are gun rights activist Tea Party aligned candidate who's courting Republican votes in the South, a University of North Carolina professor who's teaching about race and racism in the United States and, and intending to vote Democratic, a right-wing podcaster in Ohio who only became a citizen in, in, in order to vote for Donald Trump. And finally, a, a progressive journalist uh, only recently relocated uh, from Beijing to America who's confronting uh, Chinese Americans who are intending to support Donald Trump and questioning what their motives are. The film recounts these characters' experience taking part in the 2016 presidential election and the 2008 midterm elections. 
but it also reminds the viewer that it was only in 1952 that U.S. federal law was changed to allow immigrants of Asian descent to become full U.S. citizens with voting rights. There's 1952 again, uh, just like in political advertising, the first Eisenhower-Stevenson campaign. So a lot bound up in that year in terms of a, a changing America. First vote was a selection in AFI Docs back in June, and we're very happy to be bringing it back this week for viewers to watch in the lead up to the election. So once again, that's first vote from David Magdale and Associates. Okay, so that's what's new this week in AFI Silver's virtual screening room. In addition to discussing the new films we have available as virtual cinema, each week we also like to discuss some other ideas for films that you can view at home, this being our programmer's picks section. This week's pick is for the week of Halloween. And as you heard us say at the beginning of the podcast, this is also a film you can watch at home presented by AFI Silver Online. So take your mind back to 1922 Germany. A talented young filmmaker named F.W. Murnau creates a terrifying horror film, a vampire story about the fearsome, frighteningly beast-like Count Orlock, who travels from his home in Eastern Europe to wreak havoc on a seaside town in Northern Germany bringing with him plague and paranoia as he pursues the wife of a young man who himself only barely escaped the monstrous count. That film was called Nosferatu, and its plot clearly resembled that of Bram Stoker's book Dracula, even if the names and locations had been changed. This was a fact not lost on the Stoker estate, who aggressively pursued legal action. But legal troubles aside, Murnau's film was masterful and visionary, one of the great triumphs of silent cinema, and a film that would go on to cast a long shadow across horror film history all the way to today. Yes, Todd, it is a very long and terrifying shadow indeed, cast by Nosferatu. So Nosferatu was, as Todd mentioned, an unofficial and unauthorized adaptation of Bram Stoker's 1897 novel, Dracula. And while it's not strictly true to say that this is the first vampire film, and let's also remember that Dracula was not actually the first vampire novel either, it certainly is recognized as the first kind of true adaptation of this book, and of course is now one of the best known. So it was actually the film's producer, Albin Grau, who originally had the idea to shoot a vampire movie in 1916 after he'd served in Serbia during the First World War, and he'd spoken to local farmers about vampiric folklore in the area. Grau would go on to serve as the production designer on the film and was the person really most responsible for the overall look of it, as well as the distinctive promotional materials for the film, which he also designed. Um, and by the way, he was also a noted occultist. So with this goal in mind, Grau and his fellow producer, uh, Enrico Dijkman, founded the company Prana Film in 1921 with the aim of producing a series of occult and supernatural films, a bit like a silent era Blumhouse, and Nosferatu would be the first. Uh, they hired screenwriter Henrik Galeen, who had just come off working on the 1920 horror film, The Golem, how he came into the world, and director F.W. Murnau, who we will talk about a bit more in a moment. And Graham wanted the film to be a retelling, um, if not 
an exact retelling of Bram Stoker's novel, Dracula, uh, which in the early 1920s was really, if you think about it, a relatively recent book. He tried to secure the rights, but the estate of Bram Stoker, spearheaded by Stoker's widow, Florence, refused to sell them to him. And although the book was already in the public domain in the US due to an error in copyright notice, in Grau's native Germany, the book wouldn't lapse until 1962, 50 years after Stoker's death. And so this left the production with a bit of an issue. And it was an issue they basically decided to ignore. Uh, they moved forward with the film anyway, and they started production in 1921, making some slight adjustments to the source material in the hope of evading a copyright lawsuit, basically. So obviously the film... The film's title is changed. It's Nosferatu here, not Dracula. Uh, Nosferatu is a word which did appear in Stoker's novel, by the way, and it was at the time said to be a Romanian word for vampire or undead, although that etymology is disputed. Uh, the main character's name, of course, was changed from Count Dracula to Count Orlok, and the plot itself received many tweaks and modifications, um, including moving the action from the UK in the 1890s to a fictional town called Weisburg in Germany in the 1830s, changing other characters' names, removing the Van Helsing character entirely, and inserting the idea of Count Orlok bringing a plague to the town he's feeding on, basically. Um, there are also changes uh, to the vampire law that that was present in the novel. Count Orlok doesn't create other vampires here as Count Dracula does. Uh, he just kind of feeds on or kills his victims. And the idea that sunlight can kill a vampire and that he must remain indoors um, during the day is, is also something unique to the film at this point. Count Dracula is only weakened by sunlight. And this modification to the original source material actually remained a key part of vampire mythology moving forward. Um, and an interesting aspect of the novel that was retained that I, you know, I was talking to Todd about this earlier is the epistolary nature of the narrative in which letters written back and forth between characters serve to explain and, and drive the plot forward, which you might think wouldn't make much sense in a visual medium like cinema, but actually in a film like this, a silent film, it actually works pretty well to, to cover a lot of ground in the intertitles. Unfortunately, however, the changes made to the novel were not enough to avoid a lawsuit. And shortly after the film's debut in 1922, Ram Stoker's estate filed suit claiming the film was a copyright infringement. And since uh, some early versions of the film did still include the Dracula name, they were able to prove the derivative nature of the work and win the case. And as a result, Grau's Prana Films that he'd founded was forced to close up and declare bankruptcy. And even worse, uh, Stoker's widow petitioned the judge in the case to order that all copies of the film be destroyed, which he actually did order. There's a longstanding piece of Nosferatu mythology that only one print survived, uh, which was smuggled out of Germany and into the US, uh, where Dracula was not copyrighted, and that all subsequent prints derived from this one magical copy that was saved. Well, from my research, that appears not to have been the case. Uh, more than one print survived, although it is true that many prints were destroyed and that the film was not easy to see for a while there. And its, it's reputation was really kept alive by a cult following of people who did manage to see it via unauthorized black market copies. So really Nosferatu is the first example of an underground cult horror movie. Basically, it's the great-great-grandfather of Lucio Fulci's 
infamous, unofficial, unauthorized sequel to George Romero's 1978 Dawn of the Dead. Yes, the classic Zombie 2. So the moral of the story is, thank goodness for copyright infringement and film piracy, without which we would have neither Nosferatu nor Zombie 2. And thank goodness for F.W. Murnau, of course, with, without which we wouldn't have Nosferatu either. Uh, Murnau was born in 1888 as Friedrich Wilhelm Plumpe. Um, he grew up in northwest Germany and would later adopt the name Murnau from one of the towns where, where he lived just south of Munich. And Murnau was really fascinated with the stage, with acting and plays, um, and film from a very young age. At the age of 12, he would direct his plays at his father's villa. Later on in school, he studied art history and literature at the University of Berlin, where he was recruited by Austrian theater and film director Max Reinhardt. But when World War I broke out, his artistic ambitions were put on hold, and Murnau served in the Imperial German Flying Corps, surviving eight different crashes over two years of service. After the war, he formed his own film studio with actor Conrad Veidt, who was one of the leading German actors of the time, starring in dozens of silent films, including The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, and would later on be in Casablanca. Murnau's first film was made for his studio in 1919, called The Boy in Blue, which was inspired by Thomas Gainsborough's painting of the same name, and also the picture of Dorian Gray. This is one of eight films of Murnau's that's considered to be lost, with only a few fragments of this particular film still in existence. The next five films chronologically for Murnau are all part of this lost batch of films that include Satan, which was written and produced by the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari director, Robert Vina, and an unauthorized adaptation of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde called The Head of Janus, featuring Bela Lugosi. His oldest known surviving film is Journey into the Night from 1921. And throughout the early part of his career, Murnau worked primarily in horror, mixing in dramas as well. Uh, he was churning out multiple films a year, making a dozen features between 1919 and 1922, including, of course, Nosferatu in 1922. And alongside his first Hollywood film, Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans, Nosferatu is probably the film he's best known for. Given the tight and rhythmic nature of the script for Nosferatu, which actually included instructions on camera positions and, and lighting and things like that, it's interesting to know that Murnau actually used a metronome to keep the actors in time in a specific pace and rhythm for the film. And he had sketches corresponding to each scene that, refer, that he referred to while he was making the film. Um, so clearly it was a very meticulously plotted film in keeping with Murnau's directorial style overall. It really had to be that way, I think, to, to pull off some of the technical wizardry on display here. And following Nosferatu in 1924 was The Last Laugh for Murnau, uh, starring Emil Jennings. The film was revolutionary for using the first-person subjectivity of the camera and the different camera movements employed here to tell this story. Murnau followed this up with Faust in 1926, and it was his last film in Germany, uh, it was the most expensive and most elaborate UFO production at the time until Metropolis overtook it just the following year. In that same year, 1926, Murnau moved to Hollywood where he joined Fox and he would make his next three films. Uh, the first of which was The Brilliant Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans, which I had mentioned earlier. Uh, the film stars Janet Gaynor and George O'Brien 
and was written by his longtime collaborator, Carl Mayer. Uh, it won Best Cinematography, Best Actress, and even an award called the Best Unique and Artistic Picture at the inaugural Oscars. It was the first time that award was given out and the only time it was given out, uh, kind of sharing the Best Picture award with Wings that year. City Girl was Murnau's final film with Fox and is credited as being the primary inspiration for Terrence Malick's Days of Heaven. His final film was Taboo, a docufiction originally meant to be in collaboration with documentarian Robert Flaherty that he ended up directing on his own due to creative differences with Flaherty on the film. F.W. Murnau was an amazingly gifted director and a visual innovator, as is evident in Nosferatu, but tragically his life was cut short in 1931 after a car accident while riding up the Pacific Coast Highway in a hired Rolls Royce with a 14-year-old Filipino servant behind the wheel. Murnau died the day after the accident and never got to see the premiere of Taboo. After his death, his body was uh, entombed in a cemetery in Standorf, Germany, and his funeral was attended by only 11 people, including Robert Flaherty, Emil Jennings, Greta Garbo, and Fritz Lang, who delivered the eulogy. It's, it's too bad that his life was cut so short. I think uh, we maybe missed out on a lot of great movies, but there's a lot of great stuff that he did in his, his short time as a director. And of course, one of them being Nosferatu, this brilliant film that we're profiling today. Well, Ben, as you just related, Murnau made so many outstanding silent films in his too short career, uh, many of which we've shown at the AFI Silver over the years, including Faust and The Last Laugh, and Sunrise, in addition to our annual traditional Halloween screening of Nosferatu. And while Murnau deserves major credit for the triumph that this film is, uh, Murnau did have some key collaborators on the film as well, uh, which I'll, I'll be mentioning um, momentarily. Uh, but to go back to the plot of the movie, um, which we heard from Abby about, uh, the plot of the movie is, of course, largely the same as that uh, that we find in the source novel, Dracula, with some changes, not only names and places, but some, some things are left out and some things are introduced. But by and large, it really does play pretty closely, read pretty closely to the plot as, as we get it relayed in, in Dracula. But it's mostly the early parts of the novel. It's not too much uh, of the later parts after the Count has arrived in London, whereas the plot we know very well from either reading Dracula or having seen the countless screen adaptations of Dracula over the years. What really makes Nosferatu work, what really makes it effective as a horror film is its imagery. And none of that can be said to come directly from Stoker's novel. Max Schreck playing Count Orlock has an iconic look as a ghoulish, fanged, clawed, perhaps rat-like creature. And once you see him, you never forget what he looks like. And what he looks like is truly terrifying. Much of the film's overall vision and, and approach can be credited to producer slash production designer Albin Grau, uh, who, as Abby mentioned, was himself a talented artist. And the concept art, um, perhaps some of our listeners are familiar with it. If not, you can find it on the internet. Uh, the concept art for Nosferatu and, and what eventually became the promotional art as well really captures the terrifying look of Count Orlock right, right from the beginning before the film was, was actually made. And as also uh, relayed by Abby, uh, Grau was in real life an enthusiastic occultist and several occult references 
do in fact make their way into the film Nosferatu, including the symbology and the contract signed between Orlock and Nock, uh, the Renfield-like character here. The screenplay here is by Henrik Galin, who was an established screenwriter at the time, uh, with credits including the 1913 version of The Student of Prague, remade several times over the years, uh, and the 1920 version of The Golem, which was released 100 years ago this week that we're you know now discussing Galeen's work. Uh, the Golem, the 1920 version, there are other versions of The Golem from the silent era, but the 1920 version is the one most people know. It's an excellent film and also one like Nosferatu that has a huge horror film influence over the years. Think of all the screen interpretations of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and how much they owe uh, to the golem as represented in this film. And that film too is perhaps a better example of German expressionism than Nosferatu. The golem has very theatrical space bending uh, forced perspective sets. And there's a tendency to assume that all German silent films are expressionist, which isn't accurate. While on the one hand you have something like the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which can be said to be 100% expressionist in style and tone, Something like Nosferatu can be appreciated as including elements of expressionism with its dreamlike atmospherics, including evocative color tinting, menacing shadow play, and several simple but very effective eerie special effects with Count Orlock moving in mysterious, non-natural, indeed supernatural ways, as well as an acting approach throughout the film uh, where the performers often move in very slow and deliberate ways which very convincingly achieves emotional manifestations of paranoia, dread, fear. So all of these do have a connection to the artistic tradition of, of what people think of as German Expressionism. Nosferatu also notably includes an element of plague coming to the German town of Wiesborg, which is kind of a fictional mashup of Wiesmar, where the film was in fact filmed, or parts of it were the exteriors, and Lübeck, both on Germany's Baltic seacoast. And this element is original to the movie. It's not in any way from the Stoker book. And it might seem like a minor detail and a side note to the main threat of the vampire, but I think it's an important one. And there's a terrific article from a few months ago by Jim Beckerman on this plot element in particular. It was published on NorthJersey.com. And I highly recommend our listeners out there uh, to follow up uh, and read this article. Beckerman points out that Germany had very recently, 1922 this is, very recently lost over a quarter of a million people to the Spanish flu epidemic. So this element of the plague coming to town would have had a real immediacy to the original audience, and also one that takes on new resonance for those of us viewing Nosferatu now during our own time of pandemic with coronavirus. Well, I know we've mentioned quite a few derivations that the film makes from the, the source material. And chief among them, as you just mentioned, Todd, this very topical at the time, actually pretty topical right now, addition of the, the plague narrative and this anxiety around contagion and, and sickness. But another key difference between the film and its source material lies in the character of the vampire himself, not just uh, in the change to his name from Dracula to Orlok, but also in the fact that actor Max Schreck here in his iconic portrayal of this kind of repugnant, ancient looking rat tooth disease bearing fiend represents the polar opposite of the more suave and sophisticated, almost alluring count that we see in the novel. And that's later typified in, in cinema by 
performances of actors like Bela Lugosi in the 1931 Universal version of Dracula, which, by the way, was based on the play Dracula, which was authorized by the Stoker estate, uh, Christopher Lee in the Hammer Horror universe. And of course, let's not forget Gary Oldman as the epitome of 90s vampire style and sophistication in Francis Ford Coppola's 1992 Bram Stoker's Dracula. And this version of the kind of sexy, sophisticated Dracula has really endured in the popular imagination right to the present day. Um, Danish actor Klaus Bang, actually, as Dracula in the very, very recent BBC miniseries uh, adaptation is a perfect example of this. He is a true gentleman vampire. And yes, he's very handsome. But personally, I don't think any of these performances can even touch Max Schreck in Nosferatu as Count Orlok in terms of being genuinely creepy and absolutely terrifying. Almost a hundred years later, Schreck's vampire is truly repulsive and skin crawling. And of course, this is down in part to the incredible character design and costuming and makeup. But of course, it's also down to Shrek's incredibly expressive, physical and haunting performance. Shrek's probably best remembered for this role. He was also an accomplished theater actor, having trained with the State Theater of Berlin and then joined theater producer Max Reinhardt's celebrated company, many members of which would go on to be key contributors to early German cinema. And then he worked at the Munich Kammerspiel, where he had a role in the expressionist production of Bertolt Brecht's debut play, Drums in the Night. Uh, apparently one of his contemporaries remembered that he was a bit of a loner and he had an unusual sense of humor and lots of skill in playing grotesque characters, making him, of course, the perfect choice for Count Orlok. And by the way, Todd and Ben, yes, Nosferatu is kind of a dark comedy. I'm saying it now. Nosferatu was Shrek's third film role and he would continue working both in film and TV right up until his death in 1936. Uh, he did one more film with Manau in 1924, a comedy, Manau's only comedy, and reportedly he hated it, uh, called The Grand Duke's Finances, in which Shrek appears as this evil conspirator in a story about a financier who wants to transform an idyllic paradise into a sulfur mine. So another villainous character there. And despite his fame in the role of Count Orlok, Shrek does remain kind of a mysterious figure to this day. Uh, there were rumors around the time that Nosferatu came out and for years afterwards that Max Schreck was actually a pseudonym for the well-known actor Alfred Abel, who appeared in Fritz Lang's Dr. Mabuse and Metropolis, actually. Uh, I don't think there's actually any evidence to support that theory, uh, but I'll also mention that while Max Schreck was apparently the actor's real name, the fact that the surname means fright or scare in German is a very convenient to someone who went on to make a name for themselves portraying grotesque and frightening characters. That's all I'll say. And then the performance of Max Schreck in Nosferatu was actually fictionalized in Shadow of a Vampire from 2000 with Willem Dafoe playing Shrek in an Oscar-nominated performance. And this film suggests, spoiler alert, that Shrek was actually a real vampire looking to feed on the cast and crew of the film. I guess we'll never know, but the mystique that's grown around Max Shrek himself over the years has only served to make Nosferatu all the more spine-tinglingly chilling and mysterious a tale. Well, Abby, as to your uh, claims for Nosferatu being somewhat of a dark comedy, I just... 
do have to at least partially agree with you. And it's reminding me of the intertitle where Count Orlock looks at a photograph of his visitor's wife, Hooter's uh, wife, and says, your wife has a lovely dot, 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 neck. Always gets a big laugh from the, from the audience watching the film. It's a classic. That's definitely a classic line from a classic film that has really gone on to have a, a huge uh, legacy and influence. Um, as we've already mentioned, there, there are plenty of vampire stories in, in film and television uh, that, of course, on some level owe a little bit of debt to Nosferatu, even if they're not directly calling back to Nosferatu or paying homage. But Werner Herzog's 1979 film, Nosferatu the Vampire, is really a direct stylistic remake of the 1922 classic film, following the same basic plot as the original. But this time, Klaus Kinski is the menacing vampire. The film also features the great Isabella Gianni and the also great Bruno Ganz. Uh, this was the second collaboration between Herzog and Kinski. And it's really a perfect match of sensibilities with this actor-director pair uh, who would go on to make more films together, of course. Um, but this one, I think, is really a nice match for uh, a Herzogian homage to the classic Nosferatu film. Uh, and it was very well received critically when it came out. It even won the Silver Bear at Berlin. And also, at the exact same time that Herzog's uh, version of Nosferatu is coming out with Kinski as as Count Orlock, as the vampire, 1979. Also on American television, we get Salem's Lot, the adaptation of the 1975 Stephen King novel. And this movie TV version in video, we now see it as a, as a single film, but it was screened in two parts on, a, on American television when it first came out in 79, directed by Toby Hooper, uh, famous always for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But this uh, version of the vampire character, Kurt Barlow, is very much, very clearly modeled on the way Count Orlok Nosferatu appears in, in the 1922 silent film. Uh, and that is uh, a deviation, that's an interpretation only that we only get with the 79 uh, movie version of Salem's Lot. It's not written that way in the novel. Uh, and there have been subsequent versions of Salem's Lot, including a 2004 version starring Rutger Hauer, uh, which did not do it the same way. That one went more in the in the Christopher Lee mold of of a more uh, suave version of a of a vampire. So the the character of Kurt Barlow in Salem's Lot, when when you see him, is very clearly modeled on the Max Schreck uh, style of of the vampire, as played by actor Reggie Nadler uh, here in in the 1979 television version. And he's hugely terrifying to, to look at. So Nosferatu gives us this parallel tradition of, of a representation of, of the vampire as, as a more, more monstrous, uh, beastly, subhuman version than the Lugosi-Christopher Lee track, uh, which is, is the dominant one. But for my money, it's the Count Orlock Nosferatu version, which is the, the truly scariest version. And as we heard Abby uh, mention a, a moment ago, the creation of the original Murnau film was the subject of uh, Elias Merhiga's 2000 film, which purports to tell us the real story, wink, wink, of the making of Nosferatu. Beside you, it's a book about vampires. Nosferatu. Director F.W. Murnau had an obsession to create the world's most realistic vampire movie. Meet Count Orlok. 
The overture to our symphony of horrors. He dug up an actor. I'd like some makeup. Well, you don't get him. Who didn't just play the part. But you're not feeding. No, you're not drinking her blood. He lived it. What is the matter with you? I really get a kick out of Malkovich's performance here as Murnau, as sort of a preening, autocratic, director from hell version of, of Murnau, uh, as well as Udo Kier playing Alban Grau, great casting there. And Willem Dafoe as Shrek is clearly having fun with the part as, as conceived here. I haven't seen it since it first came out. Uh, it's a really fun movie history spoof, and I'm kind of, after re reviewing it uh, recently, getting ready to do the podcast today, kind of inspired to go back and check it out again. Yeah, me too. Shadow of a Vampire, definitely a dark comedy. Don't fight me about that. But another pretty recent Nosferatu homage comes in another great comedy, actually, 2014's New Zealand mockumentary vampire comedy, What We Do in the Shadows by Jermaine Clement and Taika Waititi, my favorite. And now, of course, this is also a very successful and hilarious TV series. And the film and the TV series actually includes a character called Peter, who, unlike the rest of the vampire characters has a monstrously inhuman appearance with very pale skin, rat teeth that we've mentioned 10 times on the podcast and pointy ears, all of which bear a very strong resemblance to Nosferatu's Count Orlok. And in addition, he's also the oldest of the bunch of vampires at 8,000 years old. Taika Waititi's Viago in the film is only 379 by comparison. And you know, Peter lives a quietly uncivilized life in a coffin in the basement away from his more tidy and Bela Lugosi-esque flatmates. Peter. Peter. Peter, wake up. Hey, listen, we're just having a flat meeting upstairs in about 10 minutes. You don't have to come, but I thought I'd extend an invitation to you, just in case. Um, it's a lot of stuff on the floor down here, Peter, and like these things, I don't... Oh, it's a spinal column, yuck! And I was thinking maybe I should just bring a broom down here for you if you wanted to sweep up some of the skeletons. I don't know, you know, maybe... Okay. Got you this chicken. <laughs> Is Peter coming? Should we be good? Peter's 8,000 years old. We're not going to have Peter at the meeting. Also, very recently, we've had the television series Nos4A2, pronounced Nosferatu, which screened for two seasons on AMC, starring Ashley Cummings and Zachary Quinto. Uh, this was about an artist with supernatural abilities to track an immortal being who preys on children. And it was based on a 2013 novel by Joe Hill. Joe Hill is, of course, the son of Stephen King. And then on the comedy side, we have Kate McKinnon on Saturday Night Live, who has incorporated several Nosferatu references into her very spoofy portrayal of Rudy Giuliani of late. And while we don't have a clip of Kate McKinnon's performances of Giuliani uh, to share with you here. You can, of course, find all of that on the internet. And continuing on in the comedy vein, and with, with all respects to the podcast Unspooled, which 
I think we can kind of consider our sister podcast since they do deep dives into the AFI top 100 films. Uh, and they always find the Simpsons clip for their episodes. So we can't forget our own Simpsons clip because of course there's always a good Simpsons clip. Um, this is another one from the Treehouse of Horror episode. Um, it's where Lisa is desperately trying to explain to Homer the presence of a vampire on the loose in Springfield, and who turns out to be Monty Burns. Another local peasant has been found dead, drained of his blood with two teeth marks on his throat. This black cape was found on the scene. Police are baffled. We think we're dealing with a supernatural being, most likely a mummy. As a precaution, I've ordered the Egyptian wing of the Springfield Museum destroyed. <laughs> nice work, Ed. No, no, they're wrong. The creature they seek is the walking undead. No Nosferatu, just vampire. A vampire. <laughs> These uh, vampires are make-believe, just like elves, gremlins, and Eskimos. So, as we said at the beginning of this segment, the 1922 film Nosferatu did, in fact, cast a long and terrifying shadow over uh, the horror films to come over the years, as well as setting up some pretty inspired spoofery uh, on the comedy side as well. And you may also be surprised to learn that there have been multiple songs called Nosferatu or some some version of Nosferatu recorded over the years, primarily by metal bands. That part's probably not too surprising. But there's one that we uh, came across this week that we really liked from Blue Oyster Cult recorded in 1977. So here's a, a little sample of their song Nosferatu. So that wraps it up for this week's edition of Silver Streams. Thank you all for listening. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we hope that you see something that you love this week. Thanks for listening, everyone, and happy Halloween. Thanks for tuning in. And just as a heads up, we will not be doing a podcast next week. So please check back in on the 13th for a new episode of Silver Streams. A reminder to our listeners, you can find everything currently available in our virtual screening room on our website at afi.com silver. And a portion of the proceeds from screening these titles at home goes to support AFI Silver Theater. When you're on our website, please be sure to sign up for our e-blast in order to keep up with our latest announcements. And if you have any feedback or questions, you can email us at silverinfo at afi.com. You can also get in touch with us or follow us on Facebook and Instagram at AFI Silver Theater and on Twitter at AFI Silver. And as always, our opening music for this episode was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. You can find more of their work on their website, sessions.blue.